Listeners and viewers, welcome to our podcast, Defining Health Equity. This is the second episode of a special series that we started called Dr. Dan from Inside the ER. I'm David Chernoff, your host for this podcast, and Dr. Dan Morheim is our uh, co-host here for the episode. And I want to th- first, I want to thank everybody for your support from all over the world. We're in a dozen countries now. And uh, interestingly, uh, Dr. Dan, we're getting uh, lots of folks from Australia uh, listening in and downloading. And so, folks, uh, thank you again for the support. Please, uh, what you can do to help us is click on that subscribe button. That really helps us. Uh, Google figures out algorithms and so forth to really help us in the search term. So, so please click on the subscribe button. So um, we're going to do an episode here today. First, I want to ground everybody with, with what we're trying to do. We are going to discuss um, health, complicated health issues. We're going to discuss them from a perspective that everybody can understand. And our premise on this show is to explain and to make movement in our healthcare system to understand these issues. We have to explain it in terms and conditions that everybody can understand. And although uh, Dr. Dan, my co-host here, is, is a brilliant physician, legislator, author, businessman, we want to keep it to a point where everybody can understand. So this is why we love having Dr. Dan on, his diverse background and his ability to explain things in terms that, that everybody can understand. So for for folks that have just joined for the first time, uh, Dr. Dan, can you please just review a little bit about your background? It, it's very diverse and, and explain to our viewers and listeners why your approach and your view to this, this issue of, of drugs is so unique. Thank you, David. Thank you, everybody, for listening. So my background is pretty much what you see behind me, Uh, emergency medicine physician for 45 years, day shifts, night shifts, weekend holidays in uh, probably large suburb, mainly large suburban and urban settings, downtown Baltimore, trauma center for the last 25 years, but also Navajo Indian Reservation, homeless clinic, overseas, uh, various disasters. So strong clinical background. But for also for 24 years, I was a Maryland state legislator. And the way it works in Maryland, three months a year, the winter months, I was in the legislature. The other eight months a year, I was back uh, doing ER shifts uh, like everybody else. And so my perspective comes as uh, an ER doctor. And you see all the social determinants of health, all the issues, what drives it. And just a simple fact about emergency rooms in the United States, typically emergency rooms discharge 80% of the patients they see, eight of 10 go home. But the 20% who get admitted typically make up between 60 and 95% of what comes into the hospital. And it's a very immediate, what's going on in the community, what's going on on the street, uh, you know it in the emergency room uh, right away and before any, everybody else. So it's an entry point into the system and that's what's informed my politics. Interesting. And my perspective on all these health issues. And so when we talk about drugs, specifically the war on drugs, you are front and center. You're, you're right there at the tip of the spear is what you're saying. About this yeah, issue. From, from, from the most minor issues related to substance abuse to uh, gangland shootings. And the other other hat you wear is legislature. So um, if there was a way to pass laws and regulations related to drugs, you would have seen that as well in your in your many, many years in the legislature. Is that what I you're think saying? The, f- the first bill I put in on this subject was, I think, in 1996, long before it hit the media. And it wasn't because I was particularly a genius or anything. I was just seeing what people were coming in with. And I could see the start of the substance abuse uh, crisis that has engulfed the world and the United States and most countries at this point. Dr. Dan, where did it start? What, what, what was the beginning of this? I mean, listen, we've been doing drugs since we've been walking the planet, right? Right. So, so where did this huge crisis and what, what's the genesis, the beginning point of, of this problem? Well, 
you're right. People have been using substances as long as there's been substances in consciousness, but typically it's in a cultural setting where there's guardrails. Where, where this became a real problem in the United States, and let me be clear, we're not for substance abuse. I want to make that very clear right off, off the front. And it's not the drugs, it's the context of its use. But where this really became uh, serious in the United States was in 1970. And this was revealed by John Ehrlichman, who was President uh, Nixon's chief of staff. And they concocted a policy, which he revealed later after being in jail for the Watergate uh, scandal. And he said, basically, we had two enemies, hippies and blacks, and associating hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin. By doing that, we could uh, raid their homes, put them in prison. prison, And uh, that was really the really big kickstart to it. And that policy, from their point of view, worked, actually. They disenfranchised millions of voters, filled the prisons with people they who were more likely not to be supportive of their policies. And, uh, and at the end of that quote, he says, did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. And you can see that quote. Yeah. 1994 Harper's mm-hmm. interview. Yeah, so this was a concocted policy. And so we often associate, you know, most of us think about drug abuse. We think about the substance, the person with substance abuse disorder as having moral failings and weaknesses or genetics. And, and certainly there's some element of that, some poor decision-making. But the point I want to stress through this call is there's also a lot of behind the scenes policy decisions in politics, in boardrooms, in corporations, in inst- major institutions. And so that's really set the stage and dug the hole that we're in. And if we don't understand the history and the policy, we'll never figure out how to dig our way out. Agree. And Dr. Dan, we want to blame Nixon for everything, which is fine, but it didn't stop there, did it? No, it went on with uh, President Ronald Reagan and President Bill Clinton. Uh, They both cut funding for drug treatment and increased drug enforcement and put in a series of draconian uh, laws. I'll give you one example just to, to give a flavor for this. If you were a substance abuser and released from prison, you couldn't go into public housing. That meant if you were going to return home where your family lived, you couldn't stay with them because if you lived there, the whole family would be kicked out. Housing, homelessness, that's a problem too. Another was the uh, emphasis on crack cocaine, which is essentially like powder cocaine. But crack cocaine was more used in the minority communities. Powder cocaine, kind of remember the, you know, the, the stereotypes of the 70s and 80s, as richer white people and music clubs and all that. Penalties were, were way minimal, even though it's essentially the same drug. So from a health disparity and an equity issue, uh, the war on drugs has taken its toll on uh, communities of color more than, than not. Put on your legislator's hat for for us, please. So this is going on. Uh, legislatures are passing these laws. I mean, it's not a, the president doesn't issue an edict in this country. Why would a legislature support a president with these laws? What, what's in it for them? Well, certainly the the federal Congress did, and that sets the tone for all all the states. Having been a state legislator, now there is a wide differences in how state legislatures look at. Uh, drug laws. For example, in some states now, uh, cannabis is completely illegal. Go to prison. In other states, cannabis, you can buy retail on the streets. So you know, in stores. So it, 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 there's a wide difference. But you know, people got swept up into that. But there were other forces uh, at play as well. Big, the big one, of course, is money. This is an international global enterprise. I mean, think big of business. it this way. Think big of it this business. way. Product is grown overseas from the United States point of view, overseas in Asia or South America, it's shipped in 
on a colossal basis. It's not just people carrying in backpacks across the, the southern border that just can't get enough drugs in like that. And uh, these huge amounts of drugs are then distributed in a very smart business way, virtually at every street corner in the United States. And then all the money that's laundered gets back to these overseas cartels. In fact, the Taliban and uh, ISIS would particularly want to take over opioid fields because our money ended up, uh, they would sell us the drugs and we'd send our money back. So we were doing, engaged in this policy and still are, that is destroying our country from the inside while sending billions of dollars uh, literally to those who would destroy us from the outside. It makes right. no sense. And anybody that knows the statistics now knows that uh, you know, all the numbers we'd want to see, despite all these policy efforts, so-called policy efforts, all the numbers we'd want to see improve have not. We have more substance abuse, more deaths, you know, all-time highs, and uh, you know, fewer people in treatment. So it's clearly not working, what we've been doing for the last 50, 60 years. Yeah, which is the definition of insanity, right? Keep doing the same old thing. We're not going to legislate our way out of this, obviously. We're not going to penalize our way out of this, obviously. So what the heck can we do? Well, let's go back to the penalize for a second. Big Pharma got involved there, and everybody knows about Purdue Pharmaceuticals. But uh, being in the legislature, there were suddenly these series of bills came up in uh, 1998, 1999, early 2000s called the pain bills. Now, uh, they, they basically said that uh, Americans were suffering from untreated pain and we had to do something about it. And so lobbyists from Purdue and other companies fanned out through United States and whipped legislators up. Now, in the bill hearings, and I was there, I was working eight, eight nine months a year in the ER. We didn't let people writhe in pain. Nurses cared. They were passionate, careful, you know, to make sure that we treated pain. And suddenly we're all being told we were ignoring pain. I knew that was just complete nonsense. I actually have bill hearing sign-up lists, and the first person on it is the, representing the American Pain Initiative. Later, we find out he was just a paid lobbyist. He was a charming, good-looking guy um, who spoke very well, and then this got adopted into healthcare. In fact, medical boards, and I have evidence of our own state medical board in Maryland, said, and I'll quote, the problem is physicians are reluctant, their reluctance to use morphine. And they had a hotline number for us physicians who didn't apparently didn't know how to care for patients' pain unless we were told by our state board it was one eight hundred and it went to Purdue Pharmaceuticals. It's in their actual documents. Our entity that licenses me, so this permeated everything into healthcare. Nurses would be um, disciplined if they you know didn't immediately push morphine and, and other narcotics on patients. Surgeons started to discharge people instead of with ten pain pills, thirty or forty or fifty because that got measured in different ways by others that got untrapped in this entire system. Joint Commission on Health, which uh, Joint Commission on Accreditation of Hospitals, now called just the Joint Commission, but JCHO for those who were around in the past. Um, Jaco, if, yeah, yeah if, you, if your hospital didn't score well on pain as they perceived it, you could, you could lose your license. So it was this massive constructed movement to do this, which anybody in the clinical world, frontline clinical world I was, knew was just nonsense. It was a fiction. So now we have an army. We have an army of lobbyists hitting our Congress, our legislatures to yeah. push bills to, to put pain. And to put this in perspective, the data that you, you referenced, a big pharma last year, this is just last year, 2022. You think we're trying to fix this problem. Last year, 2022, big pharma spent, almost $300 million on lobbyists 
They have almost 1,700 lobbyists, as we speak, 1,700 lobbyists descending on in, in the U.S., trying to push these bills. The next closest number of lobbyists is a little over 900 for health services and HMOs. So there's an army of drug pushers, pardon the, the phrase, there's an army of guys wearing ties and gals wearing business suits descending on Congress, pushing bills. Well, it, it, there certainly was. And, and further, if, if in the past year, many of the big pharma companies and drugstores, CVS, Walgreens, for example, have been fined uh, five, six billion dollars. Uh, and they're all doing fine. For them, coldly calculated, this was just a business decision. You know, five billion sounds like a lot of money to you and me and probably everybody listening, but it didn't, didn't slow them down at all. And so other McKesson, other big pharma distribution companies also are fined uh, five, six, seven billion dollars with a B. Uh, and they're all um, still doing fine in business. But let me translate it down to the street level and the connection of drugs and crime. Probably 85, 90 percent of crime in the United States is drug related one way or another. And there's I've witnessed testimony from experts in that subject, attorney, uh, states attorneys who prosecute cases and police and so on on that. But let, let's break it down to, I'll use my community, Baltimore, but this could be Los Angeles or Philadelphia or any small town uh, or large city. There are about 30,000 hardcore users in the basic Baltimore metropolitan area. That's not just the city, that's a surrounding million and a half people. And I would talk to these people. They didn't know I was in politics or cared about it. I'd say, how do you get the money? What do you do? How'd you get started? A couple of things. There's sort of, first of all, the pyramid scheme of addiction. If I'm a substance abuser, I want to get my friend David addicted, he'll buy from me. That's how I make the marginal difference to take to make my own money. They would need $50 to $200 a day. I have an okay income. I don't have $50 to $200 a day to right. spend on drugs. When Katrina hit New Orleans, the biggest problem was the disruption of the, the drug supply line. So the uh, people were raiding hospitals to get their drugs. $50 to $200 a day times 30,000 people is five, over $550 million a year. That's just the cost of buying drugs in this major metropolitan area. You can do the calculations wherever you live. And that doesn't count the social costs, crime victims, innocent victims, police, you know, insurance, neighborhoods disrupted, all the other healthcare costs of AIDS, hepatitis, and all the other. That's just to buy the drugs. And this money gets shipped overseas. Well, Dr. Dan, thank you for this information. We've got a lot to cover here. And so we're going to do this in two parts. So uh, this is the end of the first part. And folks, in our next episode... We're going to be discussing the direct and immediate connection between our failed drug policies that you've just heard about and crime. You are not going to want to miss that episode. So thank you very much, Dr. Dan. Every single one of our episodes, we end pretty much the same, that this is not their problem. It's not other people's problems. We're all in this together. And everything that Dr. Dan talked about affects you and I. If you're paying taxes in this country, living in this country, it affects you. So it's not their problem. We have to align ourselves. So, Dr. Dan, thank you very much for, for another appearance on, on the show and, and being my co-host here on this uh, special series. Uh, you do a wonderful job in explaining things in terms in, in, that everybody can understand. I appreciate your candidness. And, and folks, again, I want to remind you in the show notes, all the information, references to Dr. Dan's uh, comments and the organizations that he, that he mentioned will be there. Reach out to us. Reach out to Dr. Dan if you want to be, a, if you feel like you'd be a good uh, guest on this show. Let us know, because we want to continue this discussion. If nobody else is talking about it, we're going to talk about it. And uh, so you can know that you'll get the information here. You'll get it straight. 
and you'll get the real real answers as candidly as, as possible. We have no initiative to push other than the education, and we want everybody to understand what's going on. So Dr. Dan, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure talking to you. It really is. I could talk another three hours, but I don't think folks are going to want to listen for another three hours. I would. But So thank you very much uh, thank you. for appearing on the show, and uh, we'll talk to you soon uh, on our next episode of Defining Health Equity from Dr. Dan Inside the ER. Thank you very much. 